Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello everyone, Sam Willis here. Now, before we begin, I wanted to make a little announcement. I'm delighted to tell you all that I've teamed up with the excellent Bike Odyssey, a company with history and travel deep in its heart. They offer exceptional biking adventures. Bike Odyssey was set up by the historian, TV presenter and friend of mine, Sam Wood, who made the BBC documentary on Hannibal's Trail and he subsequently dedicated his life to cycling in the footsteps of great historical figures. This autumn, I'll be joining their Venetian tour travelling in the footsteps of Marco Polo. Come along and see for yourself why the Adriatic Sea is the most scenic coastline in the world. Along the way, I'll be sharing stories from my life of travel, adventure and research, as well as exploring the history all around us. It'll be a chance not just to immerse yourself in some of the world's most fascinating history, but to change the way that you think about the past. Now, if you want to find out more, just head over to bikeodyssey.cc. Hello everyone and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that simply everything has a history, like prunes, volcanoes or spices. Or blinking, winking and tinkering. Or, (laughs) in Tudor fashion, shrinking, stinking and thinking. In fact, that's what I think the Tudor age is all about. Shrinking, stinking and thinking. We will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of chairs is in fact all about witches, monarchy, punishment, superstition and the invention of comfort and luxury? Or that the history of graffiti is in fact all about Viking travel, bored prisoners, castles, creativity and political protest? The man sitting opposite me is the Hampton Court of History himself. <laughs> it's Love it. Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University, it's James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. I've, I've often thought of myself as a palace. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, more, and, 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 what, and what finer example yeah. of, of a palace is there than Hampton Court? Well, Versailles, uh, for example. I'm more um, of a cave. You're more of a cave. Um, the man sitting opposite me is the Sir Francis Drake of maritime history. It's the famous historical adventure, uh, the truly wonderful Dr Sam Willis. Hello, James. This is all good. Does that mean I steal history? That I'm untrustworthy? Don't know. I think it means you're an explorer. Uh, I explore uh, fa- history. A famous, uh, famous historical explorer. He's kind of the Ed Sheeran of the Tudor, <laughs> Tudor world, isn't he? He's quite popular. He's yes. quite, quite popular. He's ginger. 
Yes, yes. Um, hopefully you've worked out what we're doing. Um, I'm sure you all know by now we are going to be doing finally and at long last, I would say. At long last? It's like we've all... I think secretly our podcast is an unexpected history of the Tudors. <laughs> Occasionally. <laughs> Occasionally the Tudors pop into it. But we're actually doing an unexpected history of the Tudors today um, because it's one of this little series of books that James and I have written. We did the Vikings, we did World War II, we did the Romans, and we've done the Tudors. The Tudors was the one that we started off with. Yeah, the, so tu- the we- Tudors was really where we kind of... We learnt how to do it. Yeah. We learnt how we took our sort of big book and flipped it on its head. And the two, so instead of saying the history of the orange is all about such and such, what we did was we said the Tudors is all about the orange or whatever. Yeah, yeah same sort of thing. So, well, same principle, but it's sort of a different way of getting there. Yes. Um, and so it, it was very, very enjoyable to write. Um, I had the advantage of, of having you to talk to about everything. Yes. It's like, I've got a very, very good idea. And you go, mm, well, maybe this is a better idea. So. <laughs> <laughs> I have been working on the Tudors for about 30 years now. Oh I'm ancient. Yeah. I know. Um, um, so I know a little bit about it. Written a few books on it. You have. You have. Um, we've talked about those in our, in our podcast on books. So this, is, this weirdly, is part of, is part of the history of, of our books as well and our development and change as historians. Yes. Um, something we talk about a lot is... is Something that's very close to my heart is I think all historians um, do change and should change in the way yes. that they think and they should be able to pivot and move and change. And this is this weirdly is part of, of, of our history and development. And I'll look back on it in 50 years time and go, oh, that was yes. a moment. Do you know, in a weird way, I found this more difficult to write being an expert in the area than the other books that we've done. Because, you know, in some ways you just know you know so much and actually, the trick is being able to be playful and quick and, you know, to distill a lot of very complex argument and knowledge into something that is much more, you know, fun and popular. Yeah. But, but, but also scholarly at the same time. Oh, hugely. Let's, hugely. Um, I mean, what we do, do with all of these things is try and paint a, a kind of a background picture for everyone before we turn the whole, the whole yeah, thing yeah. on its head. So... Um, Let's start at the beginning. The Tudor dynasty, they ruled England from 1485 to 1603. Yes, they certainly did. Uh, Battle of Bosworth, uh, uh, Richard III uh, was defeated and Henry VII was crowned, uh, so Henry Tudor, who had a sort of fairly weak, tenuous claim to the Tudor throne and then he set about um, consolidating um, his power, uh, putting down rebellions. Uh, The big thing uh, about him was... Uh, his children, uh, he he had he had male heirs. Uh, Arthur died. Arthur was supposed to be uh, the next monarch after him. And then we get Henry VIII. Uh, and we all know Henry VIII, a fascinating uh, sort of megalomaniac of a man. Um, six wives, uh, famous for um, a penchant for wars, a real interest in religion. Somebody who is, you know, who is. Um, very interested in in certain key things, but also, unlike his father, who was a real sort of bureaucrat king, and we have his handwriting all over state papers and accounts, Henry has seems to have limited enthusiasms about a lot of things. He's more concerned with with jousting and entertainment, um, 
but there are certain things that he's really keen on. Um, this is a period when the Reformation comes in. So there's the, there's the split with with Rome, which has all sorts of implications and sets off the rest of the of the Tudor period. We then have after. Uh, Henry Henry dies in 1545. Henry dies in 1547. Um, we then have his son Edward VI on the throne. Uh, really interesting reign because he is a, a young boy, and we have two protectors effectively. We have Protector Somerset, his uncle, and then the Duke of Norfolk, uh, who takes over. Um, in religious terms, this is when the Reformation is sort of ratcheted up and we get a much more uh, sort of profoundly evangelical uh, religious settlement. Um, Edward dies as a teenager. Um, we then have Lady Jane Grey on the throne for a handful of days, sort of put up by her father-in-law, um, the Duke of uh, Northumberland. And... That then doesn't last because the legitimate heir to the throne is Mary Tudor, Mary I, uh, who is Catholic. And so the country swings back to Catholicism. Um, Mary marries uh, Philip of Spain. And you've got a very interesting uh, sort of diplomatic relationship there. Uh, she's uh, also, uh, importantly, a queen. And there are all sorts of issues around female rule. Uh, she dies in 1558, and her half-sister, um, Elizabeth I, Princess Elizabeth, takes over, who is the daughter of Anne Boleyn. And she has an enormous reign that lasts through to 1603, when Elizabeth famously doesn't marry. There are no children of her own to take over. And so James VI of Scotland, James Stuart, comes down, and we have the end of the Tudor dynasty and the start of the Stuarts, but it is a fast, really, really fascinating period, full of political, religious, cultural developments. This is the time of Shakespeare, for example. So it's a really sumptuous period to to study, and in fact, one of the most popular periods, I think, of British history. If you look at the number of books that are written on it, why do you think it's such an enduringly popular period? I think it's all quite larger than life. I think people are attracted to it in almost a kind of slightly cartoon-like way, whether you've got um, something like the Mary Rose. It's like, it's like a cartoonist has drawn a warship. It's all slightly... The proportions are all slightly wrong. It's all quite in your face. It's all, it's all whistles and gongs and bells. It's a period that sort of says come to me, study me, yeah. basically. And at yeah. the same time, you've got, you know, Henry. If you could just look at some of the portraits of Henry, you're like, yeah. what? What yeah. is he wearing? What is he doing? And then, because of his behaviour, you know, why, why has he done all this stuff? Why did he split with Rome? Why did he kill all the six wives? It's, um, and then you, you look at places like the Tower of London, Hampton Court, all of the big Tudor, the Tudor castles, the Tudor palaces. It, they all have this kind of agency that make you go, what on earth... Yes. Is going on here, and because I think it's because it's it's slightly more removed from say the 18th century or you know 19th century, it's even more bewildering, um, and so I think it's it's just a it's a, it's a wonderful period because it there's enough material culture. Yep. For us to really look at and go, good God, that is quite extraordinary. Whether it's Henry's armor or clothes or whatever yep. it might be, and all, all of that the the architecture as well yep. and all the writing. Um, but at the same time, it's sufficiently far away in history to be bewildering. Yes. 
Whereas, you know, we look at photographs of 19th century Paris or something, there's a lot we can identify with, there's a lot we can see. But in the Tudor period, there's, it's this crossover between proper medieval and the modern world. Yeah. And there's a, lot of, there's a lot of stuff that we get, get and there's a lot of stuff we do not get. Um, and I think that is why it's so fundamentally brilliant at engaging people with history, because it says it makes people want to know the answer without yes. even thinking about it. Yeah, yeah. It's also one of those periods where there's an explosion of historical documents. So if you measure it by, if you measured it by the sort of um, square meter of yep. documents, there, there's a mass of absolute mass of material that survives. You look at and the wonderful letters and papers of Henry VIII, which is a sort of multiple, many, many dozen volumes. Uh, it basically it calendars all the surviving material. So it's suddenly really easy to sort of get to grips with it. You then, If you're reading the original, you then go off and sort of find them elsewhere, but everything is in, you know, really accessible form. So I think it goes to the heart of history, and I, I suppose a lot of people might roll their eyes at the Tudors. The Tudors are so popular, everyone's interested in the Tudors, but I think other periods, other locations have got a lot to learn from the Tudors because it helps us understand why people are interested in history. And it comes back to the not knowing the answer thing, which is something I'm always rabbiting on about, yes. about how often people think that historians know the answer to things or people interested in history, they demonstrate their interest by knowing the answer to things. It's the wrong way around. It's fundamentally the wrong way around. We're all interested in history because we don't know the answer to stuff. Yes. And some periods and locations and people smack you around the face with it Yes. and make you just w try and explain yeah. what happened. Yeah, so it is literally as simple as that, and that's why I, you know, I particularly love this period as well. I mean, also for maritime history, it's a fascinating period as well, isn't it? Oh yeah, so it's a period of immense discovery. I mean, they're they're really breaking out from from the the waters around the UK. They're going well, around the world. They are literally going all over the world and and seeing the world as a different place and seeing the potential of it, but yes. at the same time not quite having the logistical capability to actually take advantage of it. So they, you know, by the end of it, they kind of they know what's there, but they can't quite. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
sort it out. <laughs> yeah. And it takes a long, long time for them to be actually, actually be able to do it. I mean, so it's not it's a quarter of a of a millennium before they can sort it out. That's how slow these things happen. So on the one hand, you've got quick developments. You've got Francis Drake goes, I want to sail around the world, and he does, and that's completely extraordinary, and that happens relatively quickly. But then this whole slow pace of development and change which is going on. So you need to see the Tudor period in relation to what happens in the 17th century, what happens in the 18th century. Yes. And so on. It's particularly what's been happening beforehand. Yes. Um, so I, 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 I'm fascinated by that as well, and and the the, the kind of the conflict contrast impact between uh, the English that we know so much about meeting and working with and fighting and trading with other countries, other places around the world. Yes. Who's your favourite monarch? Do you have a favourite monarch out of them? My favourite monarch out of them is undoubtedly Henry VII. Henry the Really? Yep. Why? Um, I like his note-taking that you always talk about. <laughs> I, like, I, like, I like his note-taking too. I like the fact that he's, he's, um, he's got a pretty weak claim to the throne. Yes. He, he, he does manage to secure it, and then it's, it's a bit like someone taking charge of a gang. It's a bit like kind of like New York in the 1920s or something, and yeah. someone's taking control and they they surround themselves with power and strength and paranoia and i think lead the way in what's going to happen for the for the next for, for henry the eighth and for all of yep. his kids for, yep. for all of his kids and how they yep. how they actually rule so it was different yep. before that henry the seventh realizes he's got hold of something and he will not let it go and i i, I massively admire that but it has to change the way that the country is ruled yep. to allow him to hold on to power yeah so i'm I, I'm, I'm full of full of admiration. I think it's quite a ball, quite quite a ballsy move stealing a country. Yes, yes, very effective. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm I I like them all. I find it very hard to pick. I'm I have a real soft spot for Henry VIII, um, partly because he, I think he's something of an enigma. He's really difficult to understand. You've got there a man who surrounds himself with close favourites. Um, they're not favourites, but they're they're people he's very 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 close with. Like people like Charles Brandon, who's one of his sort of best friends, who then marries his sister without Henry's permission and sort of famously falls out with him. You've got some terrific statesmen: Thomas More, Wolsey, Cardinal Wolsey, uh, Thomas Cromwell. So you've got some really magnificent sort of figures to study and understand, um, and the way in which Henry just falls out and either executes or, you know, or imprisons them. And I think that's that's the thing. You've got these people who he works very, very closely with, but then they fall from power and he's absolutely ruthless uh, about it. Do you think that the, the, the most powerful lesson there is for the underling, like for the modern day, if you use Henry VIII's management techniques, is is the most powerful lesson how how not to do it from Henry's perspective or how to work with someone who's basically unpredictable and a bit wild from the perspective of someone who's trying to work with someone in ultimate power as somebody who as somebody who is an academic uh, operates in a world of management um, the Tudors is a model for me for how I <laughs> yeah I mean it is a it is a not that university world is a cutthroat world at all but one of the things I'm really interested in if you look at the Tudor period, particularly look at uh, Henry VIII, is that over a period of time, the the power networks shift and alter, uh, particularly with Henry. He- what's really interesting about Henry is the way in which, as he ages, he becomes, he's, he's very different. 
So as a young man, Woolsey's able to, and Woolsey is the is his sort of chief minister in the sort of first half of his reign, and Woolsey's able to have a degree of freedom that Thomas Cromwell isn't because Henry's a much more mature sort of adept figure by that point. But it's the way in which, you know, as somebody who's operating in the business world, how do you align yourself with those sort of shifting sort of political centres of power and I think that's that. That's the lesson I'd take. One of the one of the monarchs that I to sort of move on. One of the monarchs I always have a soft spot for is Mary. I think you know she's come down to history with a very sort of unfortunate reputation as Bloody Mary um, because of <laughs> pro- Protestant <laughs> Protestant propaganda yeah. about her. And I think I think a lot of historical scholarship of late has been as a, a rehabilitation of Mary. There's been a lot of work done about her recently as a as a female monarch, so about the the role of women uh, and political power, which I think is absolutely fascinating. The her religious policy. I mean, just think about this. Mary Mary is brought up as a devout Catholic, and she's the daughter of Catherine of Aragon. And for her, anything other than that is total heresy. She finds herself in a position where she's queen and she's responsible for the eternal salvation of her subjects. And in her view, you know, the in her view, the um the um religious policy of the country is is absolutely central to the well-being and welfare of her subjects. Um, this is not, of course, to justify the persecution <laughs> of Protestants in any way, but I think she does try and she does try and bring the church back into contact with Rome. She tries to re-endow monasteries. Um, I think she makes a pretty good stab at putting the country back in a sort of Catholic frame. Um, Unfortunately, she then dies. I mean, unfortunately for her, she then dies. And I think what would have been really fascinating is had Mary had the length of reign that Elizabeth had, I think the religious history of this country could have been very different. Yeah, and one of the points about the Tudor period as well, why it's so good, is that it it lends itself to the what-if question so very, very well. Yes. What if Henry had not split from Rome? What if Mary hadn't died? What if the Spanish had invaded during the Armada? You know, um, and that's wonderful because it's like a game of chess and somebody go, well, actually, I'm going to move my bishop over here. Virtual history. Now let's see what happens. Yes. And, you know, it spiders off in so many millions, myriads of different ways, um, which is something that we also love about about the Tudors. Anyway, so I would just stop a minute and say off the top of your head, it's always difficult, this bit. It's becoming increasingly difficult to my mind. What do you think everyone thinks the Tudors is about? I mean, on the basis that we've written an unexpected history of the Tudors, you have to almost set it up by saying, OK, I think the Tudors are about... OK, I think, just broad brush, people will go, Elizabeth I... Uh, the monarchs that you said, it's about kingship, yes. it's about monarchy, it's about... Henry's queens. Castles, palaces, wars. Yes, uh, reformation. Po- politics. Churches, monastery, you know, the destruction of the monasteries, dissolution of the monasteries. Yeah. Um, there'll be nautical figures, so Francis Drake. Shake, they'll think about it in cultural terms, so Shakespeare... Um, there, there's also one actually. Of the- can you guys, can you, listeners, please get in touch with us at Unexpected Pod and give us your top three 
Tudor topics. Tudor topics. What do you think the Tudors are all about? Yes. I'd love to I know. Think that's a great idea. Yeah, I think we should do that more often, actually. Yes. Do, do it. Whenever we do a podcast, get in touch and tell us what you think they're all about. Because what we're trying to do is to, is to help everyone, including us, think about these things in different ways. So, uh, no, I, I agree with all of those things. So, shall we tell everyone what we've actually written about? Yes. Do you want to start from the top? We have decided that the Tudors is about the chair. It's about monsters. The toilet. It's about oranges. The mirror. It's about the gift. Windows. Hats. Bones. Lists. Fire. Eyes. The face. Bells. Shrinking. Accidents. Fruit eating. Letter writing. Cannibalism. And ring. Ah, now, you might recognise some of these topics which we've covered in our podcast before, but this is the first time we've actually put pen to paper and um, really uh, written down our ideas. Um, Some of these I knew, James, that I was going to write about them as soon as we would do a Tudor's book. Yes. But but the majority of them I didn't. A lot of them are quite new, I think. I think one of the things we haven't... One of the things we haven't talked about is we've talked a lot about the... Tudors and we talked a lot about the Tudors and reigns and you know monarchs but we haven't talked about is the ordinary people and I think one of the one of the things that Tudor history lends itself to is a study of everyday life a study of family life a study of um, the social and cultural life of people because we've got a we've got a bewildering amount of court material that survives that allows us to do that kind of social history. But we also have um, uh, an enormous amount of portraiture from this period. And one of the things that one of the one of the chapters that I enjoyed the most was the chapter on the face, which was based on that was based on portraits. And while we while we can see portraits as a way of looking at royalty. And so portraits are often painted of people in power. You know, that's one of one of the sort of central reasons that people are have their portrait painted, to put on a wall to show how important they are. Um, there have been big studies on portraits of Elizabeth I, on, on Henry VIII, but it's also a way in which you can actually get at ordinary people. Um, the strapline for this chapter is, we know what the Tudors looked like because we have a stunning number of portraits. There's a sumptuous hardback book uh, of this, Elizabeth and her people. But if you look at portraits of the period, we have fools, we have ordinary crowd scenes, we have, yes, we have courtiers and we have monarchs, but we also have people who are mayors, people who are clerks, people who are secretaries. We've got pregnant women. Yeah. Um, that wonderful there's a wonderful painting of Lady Catherine Knowles, uh, where she's shown to be pregnant. Uh, and what's remarkable about that is some of the forensic work that has been done on this portrait to basically peel back the layers of paint to reveal how her face was actually painted. I thought you were going to say how she got pregnant. No, 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 not how she got, not how she got pregnant. But to peel, peel back, there's, there was some, some work done in the United States by a, a great team to sort of to reveal the layers of painting. And you can see that the, the artist started off with a very sort of bold brushstroke impression of her face and then afterwards went in and filled in the sort of minute detail. And in fact, halfway through, changed 
her face because when you peel off the layers, um, she has two sets of eyes, one a sort of an inch or so above each other. So you can tell an awful lot about people from that. And there's also a way of decoding paintings as well. We're often used to, how do you read a painting? Um, how do you read a lot of the iconography and symbolism in paintings? There's a lot of work done about Elizabeth and, and representations of Elizabeth as a goddess and, and whatever. There's a wonderful uh, painting of Joan and John uh, Cook, and he was the uh, mayor of Gloucester. And the reason I'm interested in this is because there's a pair of gloves. And what's interesting is that gloves were a symbol... It has to come back to gloves. Gloves were a symbol of office, and this mayor had died... His wife took over, and rather than him holding the symbolic gloves of office, his wife is, in fact, holding the symbolic gloves of office. Mm. So it's a way of getting at not only ordinary people, but also decoding these paintings allow you a sort of an insight into the power politics of the people. And it's not just a, about portraits as well. well. The thing I loved about the Faces chapter was the evidence we got from broadside ballads, which are full of um, various sort of writings about Tudor life, including poems. And they're wonderful ones about go, get, growing old. Mm. So we, we know so much about the ageing process yes. in yes. the Tudor period. Yes. Um, a couple of, couple of ballads here. The wrinkles in my brow, the furrows in my face... Say the limping age must lodge him now where you the must give him place. Excellent. And another complained, when my hairs grow hoary and my cheeks look pale, when my forehead has wrinkles and my eyesight does fail. Um, now, all, all of this got us into, into how they, people dealt with the signs of ageing in the Tudor period. Um, there's another ballad here which mentions, with comb of black lead, with paint white and red, with patch and wash ramps up grey ladies. Um, I always think that poetry from centuries ago brings you closer to the past. Oh, I'm a, yes, I'm a huge fan of poetry, particularly Tudor poetry. The poetry of somebody like uh, Sir Thomas Wyatt, the diplomat, who falls from favour uh, under Henry VIII. And he's writing at a time when politics is so vicious and you can't really talk about it in an open way. But poetry allows you to discuss it in a in a in a coded way there's some brilliant studies about him um oh gosh whoso list to hunt uh, is a wonderful poem i'm sure i've talked about it before which is about basically it's thought to be about anne boleyn so when anne boleyn was you know caught up in in that whole sort of cult of courtly love at, at henry's court and was accused of not only incest but also multiple adulteries um, Wyatt gets caught up in that. And there's a beautiful poem, Whoso Lister Hunt, which envisions um, this this hunt uh, and takes this sort of idea of a sort of classical um, idyllic hunt and chasing a deer, uh, but basically makes it much more vicious. Mm. And if you read it in one way, you can see Anne Boleyn represented as this unattainable... Um, deer, female deer, uh, who has uh, a necklace written around her, Noli Mitange, for Caesar's I am, you know, do not touch me, I am Caesar's, um, the property of Caesar, in other words, the property of Henry VIII. Um, so poetry allows you that sort of entree in 
to a to a culture. The difficulty, though, is reading poetry in a political and and essentially biographical way like that. And some say that that is a, that's a very sort of reductive way to read it. You can read it like that. Nonetheless, if you read it in a sort of in a more general way, um, I think the fact that people are choosing such themes tells you a lot about uh, political culture. The fact that this is an age when we are having uh, so much of an outpouring of poetry also tells you a lot about the the cultural life and of the of the nation at that point. Oh, just to finish off with faces. Um, yes. The other thing I like about it is it, it. I mean, so many of these themes and ideas in the Tudor book raise questions that go to the heart of what it is to be a historian as well. Yes. And particularly the faces, because of the wonderful Armada portrait in 1588, where Elizabeth is painted with clear skin, lustrous hair, and uh, you know, four years later, again, she's painted sort of positively aglow. But you know, around that time, there's a, there's a description of Elizabeth. This is from the French ambassador. As for her face, it is and appears to be very aged. It's long and thin, and her teeth are very yellow and unequal compared with what they were formerly, so they say. And on the left side, less than on the right. Many of them, this is her teeth, many of them are missing, so that one cannot understand her easily when she speaks quickly. So there's... there's constant traps to be aware of. Well, not necessarily traps, but, but things that you can sort of revel in and enjoy as a historian. And you can, yeah. you can, you can say there are two ways of looking at this, there are two ways of reading this. And th- that's, I think, essentially what we do, which goes to the heart of what we do as historians, but particularly as, you know, from unexpected. Yes. I mean, what's fascinating about that is that what you have on the one hand is this controlled propagandist image of Elizabeth that we see through the portraits, through the official channels, you know, grand entries, you know, this sort of god goddess-like queen. Um, on the other hand, in contrast to that, you've got the sort of real-life what's and all, Elizabeth. And it, it's how do you get at that? Obviously, what you've quoted there is ambassadorial dispatches. Now, that ambassador, you know, <laughs> if, you say, if, if he were English, you know, and were caught saying that kind of thing, it would be, you know, almost treasonous. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, you are. If you have a look at some of the correspondence that's coming out of Elizabeth I's privy chamber, there's all sorts of gossipy stuff that allows you to recreate what Elizabeth was actually like in private. And there's a lot of stuff coming out from uh, Mary Queen of Scots and and um, and Bess of Hardwick um, about you know how Elizabeth was to her maids of honour. And apparently she was quite vile, um, you know, broke somebody, broke one of the sort of poor girl's fingers with a candlestick, mm. you know. So we can we can actually get quite deep into the heart of Tudor politics. It feels like we've barely scratched the surface, Sam. We have barely scratched the surface of this book. We are going to uh, we're going to stop here, but I promise you all, we're going to come back to the Tudors because we're going to um, do dedicated bodies on yes. Henry VIII and Elizabeth I and possibly Mary as well if we can and maybe uh, I would like to do the Reformation because ah. the Reformation is all about bones windows fire colour colour ooh colour love it 
Yeah. We've got lots to do. Um, thank you all very much for listening. I really enjoyed that one. It's always um, always lovely listening to James talk about what he knows about. <laughs> not saying he so, so rarely do I talk about what I know about. <laughs> That's not what I meant. I know. Um, thank you all so much for listening. Too. Please follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dr Sam Willis. And I'm at James Daybell. And you can follow the podcast at Unexpected Pod. Uh, and check out everything we've got um, coming, our books, our live shows. Come and see us live. It's really, really good fun. We've had some fabulous reviews. We've got loads more things coming up. It's at historiesoftheunexpected.com. And there is a live section, isn't there? We're doing Chalk Valley this summer. We are at the Wimpole History Festival in Cambridge. We're coming from Ways With Words at the wonderful Dartington Hall. Yep. And we're doing lots and lots of other things, so do get in touch. Yes, and um, yeah, so leave us a review on iTunes, please. Uh, we're, we're really doing something we think is important here and trying to change the way everyone thinks about the past. And one of the things you can do to help us is to please leave a review on iTunes. It really, really makes a difference. Thank you all so much for listening. Bye. Bye. The best way to give someone a gift they'll never forget is to give a gift they'll always use. American Giant makes clothes that just keep getting better with age, like their iconic full-zip hoodie that's designed to last for decades. And a gift they'll wear for years is a gift that keeps on giving. But American Giant makes a lot more than just hoodies. They have impossibly comfy sweaters, classic tees, soft, structured sweatpants, even classic everyday denim. All made right here in the USA with a quality you'll have to feel to believe. Be a gift-giving giant this holiday season at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code GRATEFULAG23. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, promo code GRATEFULAG23. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. <laughs> <laughs> you will be right Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, but you, you were different. Like you were real different. Bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout season two, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.